Well, thank you, Mark. Uh, it's a delight to be welcomed here, and I've been a huge admirer of the Berkman Center for a long time. This paper, this book, actually originated in a, uh, in a talk I gave at the Berkman Center in August 2013. And I think I can actually remember the day. I think it's August 15 or August 14. To, uh, 2003, sorry, 2003, a decade ago. Uh, you can see which decade I'm in, living in now. Uh, so 2003, August 14th or August 15th, 2003, uh, when the Berkman Center held a little uh, small colloquium um, uh, o retreat over a weekend in Cape Cod uh, with Terry uh, and, and John, Jonathan Citrin pres presiding uh, and John Palfrey. Um, so, um, so this has uh, deep roots in the Berkman Center. So the internet should herald the greatest free trade zone in history, as well as the greatest free speech zone in history. But only so long as the countries of the world let it. So I want to begin by taking a step back 100 years to a similar moment of globalization, a, a moment of globalization's promise. This is John Maynard Keynes writing in 1920, about 1914. What an extraordinary episode it was. The inhabitant of London could order by telephone, sipping his morning tea in bed, and order the, uh, the contents of the whole earth and expect their early arrival on his doorstep. This is uh, Amazon's delivery uh, mechanism uh, uh, it anticipated 100 years earlier. But of course, we know what happened. We know that uh, the idol was destroyed, that world wars uh, and uh, tariffs and non-tariff barriers between the world wars uh, destroyed this free trade zone uh, and instead uh, moved to uh, immiseration of all countries. For many, many decades, up until the 1960s and 70s, it wasn't even thought that services could be traded. This is what Jagdish Bhagwati calls the haircuts view of services. They had to be provided. Services were like haircuts. You had to deliver them in person. Um, and so uh, this is Keynes's uh, list from his book, 1920 book, uh, of all German exports in 1913, ranging, as you can see, from iron goods to zinc. Uh, so literally, the kind of uh, the catalog of exports that was possible uh, or expected in uh, 100 years ago. Today, of course, the internet allows us to, uh, to, uh, to have services traded across the world. Workers in developing countries are able to participate in lucrative Western markets uh, despite immigration barriers, and Western enterprises are able to offer uh, their service to a global audience, often free of tariffs or local bureaucracy. Technology allows us to jump the Berlin walls that divide the world. So nations from Latin America to Asia now hope to become service suppliers to the world. Uh, so the Philippines has displaced India, uh, as, you, you, as you may or may not know, as the world's leading hub for call centers. That may seem just like a technical and abstract uh, development, but it has a crucial effect on people. So over the last generation, as many of you may know, many Filipinos have, seeking work have migrated overseas. This is uh, leading to what uh, Rasel Pereñas describes as, quote, care chains. So this is where a Filipina woman serves as a nanny for a family overseas and sends money home so she can hire a nanny for her family back home. So today's services in, uh, uh, in, uh, in this digital form increase opportunities at home. And here's the remittances versus contact center industry revenues in 1912. So you see that there are almost a third of, um, they are a third, I should say, uh, of uh, the remittances for, uh, uh, from overseas uh, workers. So the technology makes possible dazzling business models. Take Kazaa here, and many of you are familiar with this. Founded in the Netherlands by a Swede and a Dane, programmed from Estonia, Run, then run from Australia while incorporating the South Pacific Island nation of Vanuatu. Lest you think that this is just the, uh, the ways of a kind of uh, uh, site that might be uh, at risk of the law, uh, its founders would follow a similar model in creating Skype, substituting Luxembourg for Vanuatu. Uh, so the theory of comparative advantage, of course, where each country benefits by opening up trade applies to all trade, whether trade in goods or trade in information. Trade may thus appear inevitable, driven by this seemingly inexorable economic logic. 
But fast forward to the 21st century, the forces of autarky and mercantilism are regrouping, but in a more contemporary guise. In 2004, the government of British Columbia was con contemplating outsourcing services to American companies, companies like IBM. The Government Employees Union objected, complaining that this would jeopardize the privacy of Canadians. They cited specifically the USA Patriot Act. The government responded by passing a law barring information from leaving Canada, at least without the consent of the data subject. Consider what this means for the possibility of moving a public university in British Columbia to Gmail. So I know what you're thinking. You just simply have to ask for a consent when the person signs up, right? That would be the simple uh, solution to that problem. But the problem is this, if the student sends an email, a Gmail, I should say now, uh, about a fellow citizen, a fellow Canadian, while she's overseas, perhaps, uh, then that information might take a trip across the border. And so she would need consent from the other person as well. Lest you think that this is a radical, crazy, lawyerly hypothetical, this is in fact the interpretation right here from the official uh, interpretation body uh, from just last year. So uh, if, if the student's next email contained personal information of friends she made during break, the public body would have to get their consent also. Uh, Gmail, where you can't actually talk about anyone else. Uh, so perhaps you think this is just a foreign problem. Uh, in 2005, New Jersey banned the offshoring of government services entirely, uh, even without any uh, provision for consent. The language would seem to prevent Google, which provides services after all, from hosting Gmails for Rutgers University outside the country. Uh, so in fact, by the way, if you subscribe to this service, it tells you we may host this outside the country. Uh, and so uh, there seems to be a compliance issue, which I raised when I gave this talk at Google uh, a, a month ago. Um, but this is, there's some irony in all this, uh, which uh, is the fact that Google can't host the information in British Columbia. And of course, this is the inevitable logic of mercantilism at work, uh, where information uh, and services and trade uh, stop at the borders and everyone is made uh, the worse. In 2010, Ohio Governor Ted Strickland prohibited state agencies from outsourcing services to foreign countries. Now, just imagine the outcry if he had barred the purchase of foreign goods. Right? So perhaps you think this protectionist impulse reflects just a couple of errant states or a couple of uh, errant provinces. Um, but consider this, the US bans online gambling, which as you know, largely has been the domain of foreign enterprises. A few years ago, the tiny island nation of Antigua challenged the US prohibitions. Here is how tiny it is, by the way. If you can look below, uh, this is the, uh, the, the street sign, the highway sign is sponsored by Bodog.com. Um, and so um, uh, Antigua argued that the US allowed gambling, of course, but only in casinos, uh, and that this operated as a discrimination uh, and a violation of the US market access uh, requirements. The US countered that it was simply trying to address issues like addiction gambling, underage gambling, money laundering, fraud. And the WTO agreed that the United States had violated our commitments, but that it, the WTO concluded that Antigua hadn't demonstrated that these other public order, public morality goals could be met through uh, alternative means that were reasonably available. Uh, Mark has written extensively on this case, and he has the classic piece on, on, on article on this case. Uh, so many of the barriers to free trade and services, I should say, uh, are a relic of an age of the physical delivery of services. It might be something as benign as the need to visit a licensing office that you, that you have so that you can get a stamp. Now, over millennia, we developed an infrastructure for trade in goods, from customs houses to letters of credit to INCO terms. So we must now develop an infrastructure for international services. This will require what I call dematerialization. So making physical presence unnecessary for authentication, notification, certification, inspection, and even dispute resolution. In the book, I talk about uh, another Berkman Center project, uh, kind of course in second life offered uh, by Berkman Center uh, with uh, Charlie Nesson uh, uh, going, transforming from uh, his scooter that he drives up uh, in front of Austin Hall uh, into this, the virtual figure uh, that, uh, that en enters uh, this uh, second life. 
so that is, of course, dematerialization in a very uh, local uh, way. So dematerialization can make trade and services even more frictionless than trade and goods. Now, of course, I'm not saying, suggesting that MOOCs are necessarily going to, uh, 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 are definitely part of the future, but they're not, uh, they're not a panacea for, at, at all. Um, so your smartphone should be and can be an entrepot to history's largest free trade zone. Now, some would go further still and make cyberspace a domain unconstrained by pesky national law. Uh, and I'm sure many in this room uh, would prefer that. Uh, but a free trade zone in cyberspace should not mean that cyberspace now becomes lawless or, in Johnson and Post terms, uh, the law of the people who enter that zone uh, as contractually determined. So after all, imagine if free trade in goods meant that we had to take in goods under the standards of any foreign country that wanted to export to us. If it meant that a Chinese manufacturer could sell goods under Chinese health and safety standards, or a Dutch merchant could sell, quote, coffee without regard to American regulation. Uh, so the other Silk Road uh, in the news this last week uh, makes this quite clear. Uh, so I'm not speaking here about the wisdom of any regulation, but just the right of any country to regulate itself and to regulate uh, what uh, happens within its domain uh, through, uh, through uh, uh, popular sovereignty, of course. So free trade, free trade means that a foreign supplier has full and equal access to our market, but must comply with our laws in the process. Such an approach for services might strengthen globalization against a retrenching backlash. And, I will talk about this backlash uh, closer to the end of my remarks. If cross-border flows of information undermine our privacy, security, or the standards of locally delivered services, they will not long be tolerated. Even the promise of more efficient production and its concomitant cost savings might not rebuff protectionist impulses bolstered by the emergence of well-publicized examples of abuses abroad. And here again, you're, you can see that I'm hinting at the NSA uh, scandals. Uh, disclosed recently. So I refer to the process of conforming your service to the local rules as glocalization, borrowing a term from sociologists. Now, in cyberspace, having to deal with the regulation from each of the world's 200 countries, not to mention the, all the federal subdivisions therein, would prove problematic for many service providers. And so it, there are a variety of important concerns in this context, and I'll just mention one here, the first, balkanization. Excessive assertions of local law may break the web apart. And there have to be thus significant limits to globalization to maintain the worldwide nature of the web. First, states must seek to harmonize their rules wherever possible, maintaining heterogeneous rules only when uh, they have done so after due consideration. A good example of this is the move towards internationally accepted accounting standards. Second, states asserting jurisdiction in cyberspace must consider rules of proportionality. So my pithy suggestion harmonization where possible, and globalization where necessary. But how do we convince countries to harmonize their laws? Whose standards should we harmonize to? Will Europe's no data processing without specific consent, or America's more laissez-faire attitude towards privacy prevail? In the book, and more specifically in a new paper, one that Mark mentioned uh, this afternoon, how law made Silicon Valley, I argue that America's laws proved to be a kind of secret sauce for internet innovation. Specifically, legal innovation in the 1990s reduced liability concerns for internet intermediaries, along with low privacy protections that prevailed, created a legal ecosystem that proved fertile for the new enterprises of what came to be known as Web 2.0. The US largely insulated internet enterprises from liability through, of course, what you are familiar with, CDA Section 230 and the DMCA Title II. Uh, most people focus on 230, but the DMCA Title II has had an incredible uh, uh, positive impact on internet enterprise. Europe, meanwhile, turned up its privacy standards to 11. Uh, the European Privacy Directive was issued in 1995, a reference that very few people will get, except for maybe Bruce and, and Terry, um, largely to address the rise of the internet. Uh, so where the US had approached the internet out of hope, and for its ability to connect the world, much of the rest of the world met the internet with fear for its negative consequences. So let me give you a couple of examples of the differences in US law and law elsewhere. Could Google have been founded in London? So Prime Minister David Cameron says that Larry and Sergey told him no. 
This is not due to the lack of brilliant engineers in the UK or the lack of finance in the city of London. Uh, Cameron explains that Google's founders told him that Google services depend upon taking a snapshot of the whole internet at any one time, and that that's not possible under UK copyright law. So uh, he explained uh, with, with apparent envy, over there they have what are called fair use provisions, which give some people breathing space, which gives companies breathing space for innovation. So in the US, uh, let me turn to a different country, Sean Fanning, the young inventor of Napster, becomes a celebrated billionaire. His multi-million dollar wedding, the stuff of extensive coverage. The Japanese Sean Fanning, by contrast, spent a decade battling the law. In 2002, Isamu Kaneko, a researcher at the University of Tokyo, distributed a file sharing program he wrote called Winnie. Two years later, he was arrested uh, because he continued to distribute the program despite the fact that he was aware that some people used it to commit copyright infringement. Imagine that same uh, standard being applied to Apple iPods, for example. Uh, so uh, after his arrest, Kaneko, who had taught a series of lectures to nurture super programmers, resigned his position. In 2006, the Tokyo court found him guilty, decrying his, quote, selfish and irresponsible attitude. Uh, even then, the judge conceded that Kaneko did not specifically intend to cause copyright violation. Uh, he kept on fighting. He was finally cleared by the Japanese Supreme Court in 2011. Uh, and so uh, the story, of course, has a tragic ending. Kaneko died earlier this month at the age of 42 of a heart attack. Kaneko began his life, uh, began the, the tw uh, 21st century, I should say, with the promise of a Japanese Sean Fanning, but he, his story ends with the tragedy of a Japanese Aaron Swartz. So any discussion of Silk Roads, new or old, must include China. And here, there's a significant puzzle. Inside the Great Firewall of China, there's a dazzling array of internet enterprise, right? Yet China, the world champion of outsourcing of goods, has failed to transfer uh, its success into services. China may be the world's factory floor, but India stands poised to become the world's back office, and Silicon Valley remains its information intermediary. And while these companies are worth billions, most of them don't even bother to offer a website uh, in any language other than Chinese, and perhaps Korean uh, for North Korea. Uh, so when listing their stock in the New York exchanges, they evince an ambition to conquer only China, not the world. Baidu tells us it's the leading Chinese language internet search provider. Google, by contrast, here's Google's uh, uh, bold and largely accurate declaration. Uh, it's a global technology leader that improves the lives of billions of people globally. So, of course, there's one obvious answer. The Chinese company are merely copycats uh, replicating American internet services. Uh, so, of course, there's an element of truth in that explanation, but as any reflection on that would indicate that it's incomplete. Silicon Valley is, of course, not immune to copying. Uh, and in fact, informal knowledge transfer is often touted as the key to its success. Facebook, for example, was hardly the world's first social network, uh, as many knows, uh, many of you will know. Uh, Friendster, MySpace, even Korea's SciWorld predate. Uh, Facebook. So let me suggest two additional reasons. First, protectionism doesn't often build companies ready for the world. Second, and I think more important, those outside China are likely to be less than keen to transfer personal data uh, for processing to a country with few restraints and governmental snooping. Unlike goods, services involve sensitive data, information about people and businesses that can be shared or used without a person's knowledge. So the argument of my book is that the Great Firewall of China not only keeps U.S. companies out of China, it keeps Chinese companies in. So this latter claim about data insecurity, which I make about the book, is now, of course, being made about the United States. So European officials are warning that Europeans may stop using American companies that process data. So this is uh, uh, Neely Kroos, the European Commissioner for Digital Matters. Uh, so. After the disclosures of NSA spying, President Obama sought to comfort the American people. He said, with respect to the internet and emails, this does not apply to US citizens, and it does not apply to people living in the United States. By the way, you can see his constitutional law professor roots in that sentence, because he's giving you 
the Fourth Amendment standard as it's currently uh, understood by the courts. Uh, so it's just not American citizens, it's also U.S. residents, right? So it's U.S. citizens abroad as well. So it's formulated very precisely, okay? Uh, so he knows what he's doing. Uh, and so, uh, so uh, uh, but reflect for a moment what this says by implication for people abroad. Can we treat them as potential terrorists simply because they aren't American? Just because you're foreign shouldn't mean you're suspect. So we need to ensure that the world feels that when they trust their personal information to us, their searches, their likes, their pictures, their words, we will be responsible custodians. At the moment, we seem to be suggesting the opposite. So I want to return to the British Columbia Government Employees Union of 2004 and look at what they said in 2004. The U.S. has made it clear that in matters of state security, the civil rights of its own citizens will be substantially discounted and those of non-citizens effectively ignored, right? Uh, that seems to be hinted at uh, a little bit, at least the latter part of it, in, uh, in um, President Obama's statement. So the, there is a huge risk here to Silicon Valley. Will Germans, Brazilians, or Chinese write emails using Microsoft's Outlook or Google's Gmail if they think that those companies are essentially CIA spies. The companies are rapidly working, of course, to try to disprove that notion. Um, but at the same time, we should be cautious that legitimate concerns, so I think those are very legitimate concerns indeed, legitimate concerns about privacy and security, however, don't mask protections for local industry. Vivian Redding, the European Commissioner for uh, European Justice Commission, European Commissioners, European Commission's Justice Minister, uh, revealed that she wanted to see the development of European clouds. Okay. There's some ambiguity as exactly what that means. So, uh, but uh, but there's a worry here that this is really uh, a mask for uh, uh, seeking to prefer. European companies over American ones. Le Monde revealed that France had a similar surveillance program, uh, that uh, uh, Germany is a prolific partner in NSA surveillance. So uh, I think it's worthwhile for us to keep in mind the question, is this data protection or is it data protectionism? Um, by the way, uh, Mark, Mark said sometimes uh, Prezi makes you dizzy and I can, I'm actually starting to feel that way from watching this. Um, so, <laughs> we are seeing the emergence of a halal internet, a BRICS internet, and a Euro cloud, uh, which this is a threat that will break apart the World Wide Web, much as the trade barriers that Keynes described between the wars. So let me conclude. For the bulk of human history, geography was destiny. The opportunity to participate in global trade makes our fate less circumscribed to the land in which we were born. Um, at the same time, the World Wide Web binds our fates more closely together, making possible both commerce and other interaction across humanity itself. And I notice that the Berkman Center is not following me, so I'm just making sure that that's corrected. Uh, so, so thank you very much, Anupam. And I'll open the floor up for questions. And again, if, uh, when you're asking questions, you can identify yourself. Okay. Yep. I'm going to start by challenging some of what you said, just to see what kind of response we have. Um, let's take the example of the Ohio government that wants to keep its information services inside Ohio. Um, the Ohio government being elected by the people of Ohio to serve the interests of the people of Ohio, when they have a legitimate interest in trying to keep that work uh, among the citizens of Ohio whenever possible. Right. What's wrong with this picture? Well, it's a picture that, of course, um, contrasts with notions of free trade and the virtues of free trade, right? So that is the kind of mercantilist impulse, which is we can export stuff from Ohio to the world, and we'd be, we want to push exports, but we want to stop imports, right? You'll never send anything to us. We will only buy from this fellow. Was only about, this was only about the procurement of services for the state government. This wasn't saying, you know, if I'm resident of Ohio, I can't buy something from Sure, sure. Of course, it's state state government services, and it's actually not limiting to purchases only within Ohio. It's within the United States uh, period. Uh, so, so the question, but government procurement is simply uh, is one uh, 
uh, large, I mean, it's, it's not highly liberalized as it should be in, in international trade law. Uh, and of course, uh, um, as Mark will tell you, uh, governments tr try to keep their ability to prefer local procurement as much as possible. Uh, but uh, everyone recognizes that what's sensible for a consumer is also sensible for a government in the ability to, to buy, purchase goods and services from anywhere. So imagine if it had done the same thing for goods. Okay, uh, buying only goods from from the United States, uh, it would have, of course, meant that uh, it would be paying more typically, and often sometimes getting less value. Uh, and finally, sometimes you can't even get the good from any other source outside the United States. Uh, then, then, so uh, this is true of services as well. The services uh, providers uh, like. IBM, like Amazon, et cetera, like the Bangalore industries or the, uh, the call center industries in the Philippines are providing services uh, that are globally competitive and that, uh, that they, uh, that are, uh, so there's the economies of scale, uh, obviously, that arises from that. But not just the economies of scale, the expertise that develops uh, as you fragment this supply chain. Uh, is uh, really quite uh, quite amazing. So uh, my book has a substantial discussion of this make or buy decision. Uh, so uh, if, uh, so uh, in fact, uh, efficient production is all about you know uh, if if the technology is allowed, turning to the markets uh, rather than turning to internal command hierarchies. Uh, and so um, and those of course are uh, those uh, uh, market-based uh, mechanisms are improved the bigger the markets are, the bigger the, uh, the base of which, from which you can buy or sell uh, your goods or services. So it's a great question. Um, governments can be protectionist, uh, if, if, but it ultimately harms them. It harms their people, it harms the, the governments. Uh, and, uh, and of course, what happens, uh, as I suggested in the... They, they would say that they're seeding a local industry, but then what happens is that you're going to see a backlash ultimately, so that Google and Facebook will no longer be uh, welcome in foreign countries, right? Uh, and so Google earns half its income overseas. Twitter earns a third of its income overseas, so it's actually less uh, global, uh, not in use, but in income than Facebook or Google, which are both half. Uh, and so, and they 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 expect to earn more and more of their income overseas. So these companies, Silicon Valley uh, needs us not to be protectionist because otherwise everyone else will be protectionist against Silicon Valley. And so I used here intentionally a service called Prezi, which is run out of Eastern Europe, uh, uh, which I can't actually recommend, unfortunately, uh, but uh, after my experiences with it and its dizzy, dizzy-fying uh, nature. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, it is important for us to be able to access and and uh, and the world services. So uh, to have a competitor to Microsoft, for example, for this service, or even Apple uh, for this service, or I guess Google Docs, uh, which is a poor competitor to this service. <laughs> Fight for the future. Yeah. So it, it seems like the issue is that um, that there's a certain class of services that are sort of end to end in the sense that they have a direct relationship with the, the end user. So you know. Back office work isn't isn't really that, but like but Google is, and in any case like that, I mean I, I can't even see a local regulation that says, you know, this government isn't going to use use Google working in, in to some extent because it'll hit some point where, you know, if that if that service is just that com that much compelling and better, people will start to say, well, why are we using this dumb web webmail service that's broken all the time, and when all the other governments are just using using Google apps, so that the power of 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 like sophisticated on online enterprises that deal directly with users to shortcut local regulation seems almost absolute up to the point where their website gets blocked. And that seems really unlikely. I mean, even if what, what's the EU going to do against Gmail? Um, so it seems like more the space is going to get defined more by the power relationships between countries, the extent to which the power relationships between large companies in their home country, and the extent to which uh, you know, a country creates a friendly environment for the world's largest companies, both in terms of education and, and you know, investment law and uh, legal protections. So uh, that's a wonderful story of uh, consumer empowerment. If we don't like a rule, uh, we'll, uh, 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 well, 
I, I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's uh, uh, accurate uh, much of the time, unfortunately. So uh, I th I bet you to this day you don't have any British Columbia public universities using Gmail, right? Uh, not because Gmail isn't going to be better than the alternatives that they offer. I you know at UC Davis our uh, general system we have switched over to Gmail finally, uh, but uh, there you know our systems were not good. Uh, I use a horrible platform for reaching my students uh, and. I wish that I could use a better platform, but the, it would take, it's already integrated with our registrar, and so I know exactly, uh, I'm sorry? Your students probably use Gmail and just set up a forward or something like that in most cases. Uh, no, but, but it's a platform for uh, course materials and, and other communications. So yes, they're going to get their stuff through Gmail or Yahoo or some other web-based service. That's certainly true. Uh, but I think these decisions are often made by bureaucrats. Uh, who are often insulated from the actual cost of the decisions. Uh, and so the law matters tr uh, tremendously. Uh, the pressure on uh, bureaucrats, the pressure from the European Commission, you know, move towards a Euro cloud, uh, you know, is a, is a very strong one. And you see again and again uh, over this course of this year, uh, statements from uh, the European commissioners saying, you know, we don't trust American services. Uh, and so uh, if you're a European company thinking about what, uh, what your options are, should you use Amazon's cloud computing service? Or, uh, and so those are, uh, so you're saying those are back-end services, and they are back-end services. So Google is also providing a lot of business services. Uh, so not just directly, you know, we experience Google as a, you know, a, you know direct consumer service. But it's it's providing a lot more and hopes to provide a lot more business services. Google Apps is uh, is hopes to be uh, the you know kind of it framework. It, you know all these companies want to be your virtual office, right? So everything you can do here, you can just do here on a laptop at Starbucks. Right? Terry. So Adam, as usual, it's a wonderfully interesting set of materials. Um, I would be curious if you'd be willing to um, reconsider some of the arguments you've offered in this distilled version here, from explicitly from the standpoint of a progressive political agenda. So it seems that one of the drivers of your um, recommendations is recognition of the um, Aggressive redistribution of wealth that can be achieved through um, dispersion of services. So that classic examples will be um, the variety of information-based services coming out of Southeast Asia provided to developing countries now is one of the avenues to upward mobility in those regions. So there is a, um, a progressive uh, component to the partial harmonization and opening that's a central to your argument. But there are also progressives, not just, in fact, probably not primarily in the United States, who resist the overall enterprise on, the on a variety of grounds. And most of these have arisen in the context of goods, but conceivably are applicable to services as well. So just to tick off a few, one is a general suspicion of um, the homogenization of global culture and the corrosion of local identity. Number two would be uh, en environmental threats. Now, this is most prominent in the context of advocacy of local sourcing of food and hostility to global transactions in food. Uh, maybe services are less relevant here, but maybe not. Okay. Um, the third example would be the theme that you and Madhavi have pursued, namely opportunities for disadvantaged or indigenous groups in the developing world to capitalize upon uh, traditional forms of knowledge, which tend to be geographically grounded, to um, leverage economic power in the present. She offers many the last sentence, I'm sorry. The, the, the ability of, this is your own argument. Yes, yes, okay, yeah. you of, uh, <laughs> the, the ability of, of, of disadvantaged, historically disadvantaged, often indigenous groups in the developing world to capitalize upon local cultural heritage to 
um, recover some portion of the profits that the developed world have been able to reap from them for centuries. And the last one is more European in character, is uh, another hazard of homogenization is that it um, corrodes the capacity of countries that have witnessed horrific forms of genocide or exploitation to um, impose controls that would reduce the likelihood in much of Europe of a neo-fascist revival. Right, right. So those would be all, as I say, viewing these considerations from the standpoint of a progressive political agenda, aren't there things we should be worried about here? So I see the book as progressive in, in, in exactly those ways. So let me explain why on all those fronts. So um, I think the pure cyber libertarian approach is to say people can opt into whatever set of rules they want. Uh, and uh, so take, for example, the Yahoo Nazi memorabilia issue. Uh, Yahoo and the consumer sitting in France should be able to choose the law of whatever state they want. And, and the, uh, the French consumer of this material saying, I, I'm choosing California law to govern this transaction and therefore opting out of the local uh, rules. And I think, in fact, that uh, this idea of globalization, which I borrow exactly from soci sociologists who are concerned about that homogenization, uh, the homogenizing effect of uh, global uh, culture, that kind of flattening of uh, local difference. So I say, no, of course, uh, popular sovereignty means the right of countries to be able to create their own uh, uh, rules. Now, I temper that with uh, a worry about protectionism. Uh, so yes, you can do it. You can create your own rules. But if it's, if it's just a subterfuge for local protectionism, then it's a problem. If this is just a way to prop up a local uh, alternative, then I've got a problem with that because it, it's actually uh, uh, you know, harming everyone, as Keynes would have said uh, in 1920. Uh, so, so I think uh, there's concern about that. Now, you're speaking of the long history and the culturally specific uh, nature of rules. I want to give you another example uh, besides the Yahoo one. Google ads for a while, at least, uh, and Facebook too, allowed in India uh, searches to have ads next to them uh, which would be advertising for sex selections, uh, abortions. Okay, so basically they would help identify the gender of the, the fetus uh, and uh, then could uh, lead to uh, the abortion of that fetus. Um, India, uh, you know, uh, roundly complained to Google and Facebook, uh, and Google and Facebook desisted. So you can have those kinds of ads in the United States, but you can't have them in India. Uh, those are, it's a very culturally specific thing, uh, and it's important that the Indian government has, has that kind of control. So in other words, we don't, again, want to make uh, the internet a free speech zone in the sense that all speech uh, goes uh, without any kind of local constraint. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, in, in fact, you might be able to say uh, pro-Nazi speech might, not, might be unacceptable. You might, some countries, lots of countries have rules about uh, denigrating religion, uh, you know, I live in the United States, I tend to favor our rules, but I'm not, you know, I'm not uh, speaking to the wisdom of any other country's uh, rules, and I think it's important for our countries to have the, the ability to do that. So I think, in fact, my, uh, my effort is trying to bridge that kind of progressive, so uh, uh, Mike Moore spoke uh, on this book yesterday, and he described uh, uh, himself as a uh, free trade social democrat. Uh, this is Mike Moore, the former head of the WTO, not Mike Moore, oh. the director. So, just <laughs> okay. making sure to make that point. Free trade social democrat is still not. Just making sure. <laughs> Sorry, Anna. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, he's also the former prime minister of New Zealand, so he's a, a, a Kiwi, I guess. Is that he, though he didn't call himself that? I don't know if they actually do call themselves that. Uh, I'm sorry. Even when I was there last. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. okay good. <laughs> Uh, and so, um, so, so I think that's the kind of uh, the uh, the spirit of of this uh, of this work. With respect to the environment, I actually think that there are strong environmental reasons to want this kind of international uh, trade and services. 
one, as you know, uh, providing trade-owned services uh, uh, kind of uh, helps consumers, but more importantly, might, um, so one of the big drivers of energy use increases in the world is servers, right? Uh, so uh, server farms are very, uh, you know, kind of energy uh, intensive. And so what companies like Facebook and Google have done, and I don't know if you saw this uh, story, some of you may have seen the story in the weekend uh, New York Times again, about Facebook placing servers near the Arctic Circle. Um, because they can take advantage so that one of the reasons you need energy is to keep them cool, uh, to keep everything from overheating. Uh, so Facebook now just has bare motherboards, basically, uh, you know, just uh, uh, running very hot, like 85 degrees or something like that, uh, but uh, cooling them through the frigid Arctic air. Uh, and so if you had localization requirements, which are again and again being uh, um, mooted across the world, uh, where you can't store ser services outside my country, that means you're going to have servers in lots of places where the energy is not going to be very green. Uh, and so, um, so I think there is a strong uh, future environmental impact at issue uh, that uh, we need to be uh, concerned with. Thank you for the wonderful presentation. That was terrific. Um, I have a question kind of going back to the Silk Road idea, and it's kind of the non-progressive agenda, the commercial agenda. Silk Road was not a commercial enterprise or a commercial supply chain, right? So one of the, one of the things I'm interested in is the harmonization idea. You know, the Peace of Westphalia, 1648, creates nation states. So we have local law. The laws of physics that the internet was built on are not local. They're universal. So that's why we have this universal system, buildable, interoperable, universally. But we have local laws, which gum up the works from the commercial perspective. So one of the things I'm wondering is, in the harmonization idea, we have these two ways to have duties to uh, evoke harmonized behaviors commercially and otherwise and socially. Duties can come from contractor legislation. Now we don't, we can't have legislation in this country anymore until legislators meet again. <laughs> so we may have legislation in the future. This may become a necessity, not just an option, but. Seriously, if we look at, I'm interested in the role of contract, and in particular in contract in new space and new value propositions, so that it's not in the legislative, existing legislative space. So if you talk to Vivian or Nelly in the EU, they're looking at some artifactual paradigms, right? So what I'm wondering is just some of your comments on the role of contract in uh, helping to achieve the harmonization that Peter might help with some of the issues. So uh, let's talk about privacy. So the United States is hoping for a kind of um, uh, a global um, kind of dialogue, a multi-stakeholder dialogue convened by the U.S. government, of all things, uh, and then enforced by the U.S. government. Uh, so a very interesting set of uh, kind of a hybrid model where the private and governmental entities including ones from around the world, collaborate on a certain set of industry-specific privacy rules. And then the Federal Trade Commission enforces those rules, at least enforces deviations from them with its small sanctioning power. Right? Uh, and so, uh, so uh, it's a kind of hybrid model. It's the kind of, um, you know, not exactly contractual, because um, once the hope of the Obama administration now is that they actually become uh, legally, uh, not just contractually uh, kind of uh, binding, but actually potentially legally binding within that industry on even on parties that haven't contracted into that regime. Uh, and so, so that's one approach. Of course, the European approach is a very strong privacy regime that really uh, safeguards data across the world, uh, as, as it, of Europeans as it travels across the world. Um, I tend to feel that the European approach is, uh, is uh, uh, dangerous to innovation. Uh, and so in, my, in the book and in the paper, the how, how Law Made Silicon Valley, I argue that it's been a substantial uh, uh, problem for uh, European companies. You haven't seen, you know, uh, European, uh, the rise of these I immense uh, European companies uh, 
uh, in this space. Uh, not, I think, because of lack, as I said, lack of capital or lack of brilliant engineers, but because uh, of these privacy rules that, uh, and the IP rules that kind of uh, stultify innovation. Uh, because in, so if you look at, uh, so I know that many of you will be uh, alarmed by this. Uh, so, um, you know, so um, imagine this. So um, you can now see what is the most highlighted portions of a Kindle ebook. Okay. Uh, so, um, you know, which could be very useful. I'd love to have, you know, Mark's text, uh, new text, uh, you know, uh, and see what my students are highlighting. Maybe not, not individually identifiable, perhaps, but I'd love to see, you know, uh, you can imagine all kinds of things that we might learn from what they're doing. But I don't think that Amazon, when it started doing this, even knew that it was, it was going to happen. Okay, so when Amazon started collecting that information, it didn't expect it. Maybe some visionary engineer saw the use uh, a couple, you know, five years later of that highlighting. But when they realized what kind of data they were getting, they realized that they had some, something valuable. So this is the kind of uh, innovation that becomes possible in a world of largely contractually supply, supplied privacy, which is a world largely absent, devoid of privacy, by the way. Uh, so, uh, so I'm not for arguing for a world devoid of privacy. I actually think that, but I think that the European model goes too far uh, towards stultifying it. So this is a controversial claim, and I know that uh, many of you will be uh, alarmed. Just as follow up, yeah. one of the things that's interesting, and I hadn't learned this until recently, is that the Chinese, Korean, and Japanese law are based on German law in the IP area. Property, I hadn't known that. And the IP law in Europe, as you know, is based on kind of a Hegelian and Kantian notion morale notions and non-alienability kind of notions. And we have a Lockean kind of notion in the UK and US and laissez-faire kind of approach. So it's a very generalizing here, of course. But the import of those German concepts into Asia is becoming very interesting because not there's a, a mimicry that's going on, as you alluded to, in China with regard to IP. One of the things I think will be interesting is how the European uh, privacy iteration of that philosophical construct will iterate itself in Asia. Because you have Confucianism there as well as a philosophical construct that informs the elements of that society. And that group individual relationship bears upon obviously privacy as you alluded to, but also just generally those commercial relationships where the, the efficacy will lie. So of course, as you know, I can't leave um, the claim that it's our system is Lockean. Uh, you know, Feist is, would, of course, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, militate against that. Uh, you know, I know, uh, uh, I know my uh, colleague uh, Rob Murgis uh, uh, would uh, would be uh, would probably support the return to that kind of vision, but uh, that's not, I don't think, the the way that American law is it currently stands. Now, mind you, I do think that there's a lot of. Uh, uh, kind of moral rights impulses, even in the United States law, there's a, and a lot of Lockean impulses. So this is, it's all more complicated and, and more of a jumble. Uh, if you ask a legislator what he or she is doing and why he or she is doing it, I don't think they're going to give you the law and economics version of the of the of the story. If I look to the Netherlands, right? Um, Could you remind me where you are again? You said you're a professor. I apologize. I didn't catch where you were. I'm a professor at the University of Aruba. Aruba? Aruba, yes. Aruba. Yes. Wonderful. Come okay. Visit. Well, this is a. <laughs> uh, and do they take visiting professors? Let's name it for office. I have you on uh, record here, by the way. So. <laughs> Um, the innovation thing. Um, you know, I'm originally from the Netherlands. And if I look back at the way things developed in the Netherlands, we used to have this thing called Hives, which was Facebook, before Facebook. Why did Hives fail in the Netherlands? Because they had like 100% market share at one point. I guess mostly because they weren't international, it was a Dutch website. So if you would, you know, find someone outside of, you, you can find them on Hives. So, you know, Gradually, they got pushed out because they didn't have the same worldwide um, setup as Facebook did. eBay, for instance, 
we have this site, uh, we still have this site in the Netherlands called the Dutch Marketplace. Um, and it was bought by eBay because it was already fully functioning and eBay couldn't get, you know, penetration. Um, so then I'm like, okay, even though we have more stringent privacy rules, you know, some of the same things developed and for different reasons, maybe failed or stayed, you know. So, um Mark alluded to my paper, Facebookistan, which a version of which appears uh, in this book. Um, uh, so I reviewed all the co uh, contests that Facebook has had with the law around the world uh, that were published um, at the time. Uh, and I, I really think that Facebook was uh, could take advantage of the lack of U.S. privacy protections by repeatedly innovating new ways to use information. So some of you, you're all familiar with Moore's Law, uh, but you may have not have heard of Zuckerberg's Law. Uh, Zuckerberg's Law says that every year the amount of information shared will double. Okay, uh, I'm not kidding you, this is Zuckerberg's Law as he, would, as he, as he, as he states it. Uh, and so, uh, and Facebook, in fact, kind of epitomizes that. And if you follow the history of Facebook, everything they do is followed by an international outcry about their erosion of privacy. Okay. And you know what? They fiddle with it a tiny bit, and they do it anyway. Okay. Uh, and so, uh, so they, there are slight exceptions to that rule. Uh, but their ability to innovate uh, about the sharing of information has l made it hard for other services. Uh, you're right that the, the Dutch people want to communicate with, not just with Dutch people. So they need a global service. But why wasn't Hives the global service is the question, right? Uh, you know, Dutch people certainly speak English, are the most bilingual people in the world, uh, some of the most bilingual people in the world, right? Uh, and they speak multiple languages. Uh, and so uh, they could have been the next, the what we think of as the Facebook, right? Um, and so uh, we've got, this has been a tremendous problem. I do argue this risk for companies like Baidu uh, and, uh, and the social networks within, uh, within uh, China, that once they are actually exposed to real competition, um, they will face this kind of, uh, of uh, fear. And one of the things I, one of the claims in the book is that the fact that China didn't have extensive privacy protections and pr extensive IP protections worked in favor of Chinese I internet enterprise. Uh, so they actually, there's a really interesting story about, the la you know, Baidu, a lot of the searches are MP3, as Terry well knows, Terry knows the, the Chinese uh, MP3 market really well. Uh, uh, so. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of the searches are for uh, MP3s, etc. So that helped uh, their growth tremendously. So uh, um, I want to ask a question just to get a sense, uh, having read the book, of how much you think this time is different, right? Because every time we get a new technological innovation, in some ways, right, the Silk Road that you alluded to is just moving into cyberspace. Um, so two questions along those lines. One on filtering, right? If you think of the old Silk Road, um, if there had been a town on that Silk Road, the towns were free to do whatever they wanted to do, but if there had been a town that was going to inspect every single shipment and then set certain ones aside and really check in through all this, right? eventually the traders would just decide to bypass this town and move on to the next town. This town couldn't get away with doing this and so on and so forth. So my first question is, how much do you think that's also true with respect to what we think of as the new version of this on this new Silk Road, right? Electronic filtering and going through and having those types of controls. And do you, are you a determinist enough to think that societies who do so will either be forced to loosen up or face economic peril? So that's the first question. The second question is, even if you think about the old roads, there are certain types of services that countries, for whatever reason, oftentimes they say national security, have just not wanted to globalize, right? So think about railroads, right, one of those. Um, postal delivery, right? Even though it would be much more efficient for countries to merge their postal systems together, countries still want to have their own postal delivery systems. On the other hand, things like airlines, right? Over the last 20, 30 years, at first everyone wanted their own national carrier. Now people are fine with mergers or even X taking over Alitalia and so on and so forth. 
So do you see an internet version of what would be, say, postal delivery services or these kind of core services that countries very rightly would want to retain some form of a national mode of um, delivery for? It's um, a great question. Um, so in my, you know, so there's something funny about the title because I'm saying something, this is like something that was before, but I'm also saying that this is totally new. So I'm doing both at the same time. And I think, um, you know, I would say that it's like before and still new. Uh, so it's, you know, whether that's reconcilable or irreconcilable, I'm not sure. Um, but I do believe that there are important things that are different. And let me give you an example. So you talked about countries that are doing filtering. And we had this amazing example this last week. So um, the uh, uh, Israeli uh, leader gets on BBC Persia uh, and, uh, and says, uh, using old technologies uh, largely, uh, but also the, the internet technologies that allow that information to spread. He says uh, uh, the Iranians uh, need to be able to, uh, to use um, uh, Western services, internet services. They need to be able to, they, sh uh, they should be able to wear blue jeans and listen to pop music. And, uh, and of course, what happened, and he says at the same time, you know, the tragic, tragic thing, he says, uh, you know, he watched uh, Neda Aga Sultan uh, die uh, using these new services, right? Well, it turns out, of course, uh, as the Iranians pointed out to him using Twitter, uh, that uh, Neda Aga Sultan was wearing blue jeans uh, and, uh, and when she died. Uh, and uh, they, uh, then the Iranians also, the young people in Iran, uh, the New York Times actually tells us, wear blue jeans at the same rate as Americans, apparently. Uh, and uh, they all, uh, you know, tweeted images of themselves wearing blue jeans and listening to Western uh, pop music. Uh, so, and that's a country that, of course, tries to do that filter, tries to have that halal internet, um, et cetera. Uh, you saw also this last, um, it was actually probably a little bit more than last week, uh, uh, the, one of uh, the, uh, Twitter's founders, uh, Jack Dorsey, tweeted to Rouhani uh, he, uh, because uh, the new leader of uh, Iran has his own Twitter feed. He said, are the people of Iran going to be able to access this information? Uh, and the, and the uh, president uh, tweets back, I'm working to make sure that Iranians can access all the advantages of technology, basically. Um, you know, so non-committal, but, uh, but, but at least uh, a conversation in a, in a very interesting way. So it's, it seems different. How often, when, when um, when General Motors went into Iran, did its CEO or founders, you know, speak to uh, the kind of speech uh, and politics of the country? Uh, they typically just worried about whether or not their factories could be built, whether they had the, you know, they could get their stuff on the roads. Uh, trade protectionism, not the stuff that Silicon Valley worries about. Why is Silicon Valley worried? Because Twitter wants more markets <laughs> and. Speech and markets, are, uh, market share are the same. Uh, that's the true for Silicon Valley, right? Silicon Valley uh, is information intermediaries. And so they have a tremendous investment in free speech. Uh, the more free speech, the better off they are. Uh, and so they become, uh, by virtue of their own uh, kind of economic uh, structure uh, and their own ideologies, very strong uh, free speech uh, uh, activists across the world. And Twitter, I think, is you know is the uh, is the new uh, zone for speech, uh, and so um, you know, and I keep this. This the cover of my book is, um, and I don't know if this is uh, obvious, but if you look at uh, the cover right here, this is tweets and retweets. Tweets that um, this is a map generated using uh, the uh, the nodes of uh, the location identifiers of of people actually within the tweet. Uh, so the, uh, the person who does the tweet and someone referenced within the tweet. And then there's a retweet. And you can see that these retweets and retweets are occurring across the world, that people are talking to each other.
Okay, that's the, that's the, that's the, uh, what it also shows, and I learned this before, the New York Times actually revealed this with this last, uh, 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 this last week. It turns, if you look at this map closely, it turns, there's a, there's a blinding uh, light uh, in the Pacific Ocean, uh, and it turns out to be Indonesia. Uh, so it turns out that Indonesians are the heaviest uh, uh, tweeters in the world uh, for some, uh, interesting reason. Apparently, they may be very talkative. I don't know. Uh, people could, could opine on that, uh, on that cultural phenomenon. Uh, I also, uh, uh, as I said, I had uh, uh, the Prime Minister of uh, New Zealand talking about this yesterday, my book yesterday. He had one complaint, which is that my cover, uh, and this isn't my fault, um, uh, <laughs> uh, so I, I felt kind of embarrassed, but uh, uh, but, uh, but yeah, so I think that it's, uh, it's, it's different. Um, uh, I think filtration is possible. Uh, it's imperfect. I don't think it's futile. Uh, so I'm not one of these people who thinks that, you know, uh, the net sees censorship as damage and routes around it, right? This is the, 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 the statement that's made. Uh, you can uh, stop the net. Uh, it's possible. Uh, and uh, it, it has huge uh, consequences, but there are, there are very few countries in the world that have uh, really uh, gone off the grid, and this is true, uh, uh, certainly not of China. China is still, you can get through to Google through the Hong Kong service uh, in, in China, even though China could have banned Google entirely, even the Hong Kong gateways, right? Uh, and, uh, but, it's, uh, but it's true largely in North Korea. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there are very few places where the internet uh, it hasn't had substantial reach. Um, I have questions from the, um, how would you classify the, you know, lot of online service into the current regime of the WTO. Um, the trade lawyer, Sam Lester, just raised the questions on the World Trade Net yesterday, asking, um, he asked, there are a lot of online services, actually they are only provided for educational purpose, or they are provided for free. So he was wondering, to what extent can we still trade it like trade in service? And how would you classify then this kind of service under the W1 Hobby list? So I, uh, I, I am quite familiar with this. So this was an issue raised at the WTO Public Forum this last week. Um, what exactly is this information service? What exactly is Wikipedia, uh, et cetera? You know, is it traded? You know, does it make sense? Um, I have to say, it took me a long while to understand that Google was a service. I mean, I know it seems obvious uh, when you say it, uh, but it took me a long while. You know, I didn't begin writing about Google in this in this paper and this what became this book. And when I gave this talk in 2003, I was talking about network. I wasn't talking about Google, uh, and it took me a long while to recognize it. Uh, and uh, so, um, so and. But I think, and I've read uh, the uh, World Trade Law .net, Simon Lester's uh, report on this on this question. Uh, so, and I agree with Simon that uh, in fact uh, the word services is so broad in the uh, in the um, in GATS in the General Agreement on Trade and Services that it does not require a commercial component to be a service. Um, now that said, I don't think it's that really that important because. No, I, I don't see governments making claims on behalf of non-commercial services. So this is the, I mean, I would love to see, you know, the U.S. government making a claim on behalf of Wikipedia. It might, but only in conjunction with a claim on behalf of Google. Uh, and so, uh, you know, this takes a lot of money to uh, create, you know, to do these cases. Uh, and if there isn't a huge commercial interest, uh, there's uh, less likely to have the governmental interest in, uh, in uh, following up on it. So I do think that the non-commercial services would be covered under the GATS trade obligations. Um, whether that's practically relevant in terms of bringing a claim, I don't know. Except that it would be, the claim would be brought on behalf of a number of services, including uh, a non-commercial service. We have one last pitching question, if anyone has it. Do you think that the that the world governments are all these different governments are ready to harmonize with the constituency? Not, you know, th there's a big problem right now with 
digital illiteracy, right? A lot of people don't understand how the internet works, how caching works, how the different methods to get information in the right place works. So are we even prepared to harmonize or is there, what are your thoughts on that? So I think the future is in harmonization. It's going to be so hard not to harmonize, uh, uh, to uh, create where, you know, like international standards bodies for lots of different things, for security professionals, uh, for uh, uh, architectural services, for maybe even lawyers. Uh, and so, you know, these kinds of things are going to happen. Uh, that's the that's the future. I, you know, when I talked about this a long time ago um, uh, with Bruce Ackerman, uh, he was disappointed ultimately in uh, my approach because he favored uh, kind of, uh, uh, he, you know, his view was why not just move towards world governance, right? Uh, and harmonization is world governance, right? Uh, and so there's something, uh, uh, there's a very important thing that is happening uh, in the moment. Uh, we're living through a moment where nation states are crucial and they're important for consumer protection. Uh, and for a popular sovereignty, but ultimately the internet is bringing us all closer together. And this tweeting and retweeting uh, is uh, heralds a world where uh, uh, nation-state borders are, cannot be maintained uh, forever. I wanted to ask you: We actually are working with the University of Indonesia now. They're writing a comprehensive cyber legislation, e-sign, privacy, the whole schmear. What resources, they want to harmonize, and they want to talk to people in the U.S. government, that's a hell of a place to start, so let's go with that. What resources shall we direct them to, in addition to talking to the governments? Because I wanted them to talk to you would be a nice thing for starters, <laughs> but are there other resources out there besides the existing resources that we might direct them to? So, um, I'd recommend this book. Yeah, that was good. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and so, um, but I, I have a number of papers. The How Law Made Silicon Valley paper, I just, for whatever reason, I always forget to actually post it on SSRN, but it will go on up on SSRN. It's coming out in a couple of months uh, uh, in Emory Law Review. Um, uh, and that's, I think, an important paper. Um, Uncitral, of course, is the kind of principal uh, place where this kind of stuff is happening, the work program is happening. Um, but the worry uh, on this kind of international front is a kind of overzealous view that IP equals innovation. Uh, and so when, when developing countries look outside, uh, the Western mantra has been IP equals innovation. Uh, and I don't believe that's the case. I think IP is important for innovation. I'm not saying that we should go to a no IP regime, but that breathing space uh, is crucial. Uh, and the breathing space exists in U.S. law. Uh, everyone thinks of U.S. law as being maximalist, and I think U.S. law is very excessive in a lot of ways. But as you can see, we have a huge tumult of uh, very prosperous internet enterprise uh, that grew up in the shadow of this IP regime. Um, thank you. So thank you very much, Honorable.